go to Mark chapter 9. That's where we are today. Um, and I have been anxious, well, in a, in a good way, all week to share with you about this text. Um, I am just stoked about today, and I'm really looking forward to um, sharing God's Word with you. And so Mark chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 2, and we're going to go to verse um, 13, starting in verse 2. All the way to verse 13. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not want to sit, know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the loud cloud. And it said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come, first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Well, I'm excited to continue our study in the book of Mark this morning, but before we jump in, I've kind of already warned you to this. Um, this text absolutely hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Uh, I think in the past when I thought about the transfiguration, and I'm not saying this is right, but I think I thought of it as kind of a side story, right? Like Jesus has this intimate moment with the disciples, what we talked about last week, where Peter confesses that he is the Christ. And then we get this side story where Jesus has a conversation with Elijah and Moses. And then we get back to the main story where Jesus begins to head towards Jerusalem. But this story is so much more than that. And so let me give you a heads up here at the beginning. This text is littered with Old Testament references. I mean, they are all over the place. So if you are taking notes, if you've got your little Mark journal, um, I just want to warn you, maybe don't try to get your Bible and go back and forth all the way throughout but write those references down because there will be several of them. I'll have the verses on the screen, uh, but I would encourage you to write the verses down as you follow along. But I actually want to start by discussing a moment that we talked about briefly last week because this moment is actually going to help us understand this text a little bit better. So look in your Bible at Mark 8.22. We talked about this very briefly last week, but this is going to actually help us uh, understand a little bit about a little bit more about what's happening. So let me read to you verses 22 through 26 from Mark chapter 8. It says, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Okay, so this story goes from a man not being able to see at all 
to being able to see in part, to being able to see fully. And last week, we talked about how this story is meant to be a description of how the disciples currently see and understand Jesus. That in the first half of the book of Mark, we see that the disciples don't get it at all. They are completely blind. They don't understand. They don't see who Jesus is. But last week, Jesus began to open their eyes. And we saw that they saw part of Jesus when they confessed that he is the Christ. They had the right words, you are the Christ. But they did not fully understand the implications of Jesus being the Christ, being the Messiah. In other words, their vision and understanding of Jesus was blurry. Like the blind man, I see people walking, but they look like trees. And so in verse 31, it says that Jesus began to teach them. He began the process of opening their eyes, of giving them sight. And today, we're going to see that process continue. That Jesus is going to open their eyes even more. So let's go down to Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Let me read that again. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. So he takes three of the disciples, and he leads them up a high mountain, just them four, and he was transfigured before them. So there's something I want to point out right here at the beginning that is just fascinating. I want you to notice that word mountain. Do you see it? That Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain. That's not a coincidence. Okay? That is not a coincidence at all. All throughout the Bible, God will reveal his glory on mountains. It's pretty fascinating. So let me read to you from this Exodus just a few moments where God reveals his glory on a mountain. I'll start in Exodus 19.16. And as I go through these, I just want you to listen. Listen to how and what it looks like, what it feels like, what it would feel like for these people to see the glory of God. Okay, so Exodus 19, 16. Listen to this text. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud, where? On the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Everyone's terrified. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. I mean, imagine that scene, right? You've got thunder, you've got lightning, you've got a thick cloud. There's a trumpet that blasts. It's so loud that it makes everyone below the mountain tremble. The whole mountain's wrapped in smoke because the Lord is descending in fire. And then the trumpet gets louder and louder and louder. And then Moses speaks and God answers him in thunder. Look at verse 20. It says, The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. You've got Moses walking into the scene. And then go to Exodus 24, 15. It says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. It's important. And on the seventh day, He called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on that mountain for 40 days, 
and 49. So Moses meets with God on the seventh day where God will reveal his glory to Moses. Okay, last passage. Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now back to Mark 9. After six days, see that? After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. Just like Moses, after six days, Jesus takes three of his disciples up a high mountain where the glory of God is going to be revealed, and the text says that he was transfigured before them. That word in the Greek is the word metamorpho. Okay, it's where we get the word metamorphosis. I think I said that right. We'll move on. Total, but it's this idea of total transformation, that Jesus took on a different form. He transformed before their eyes. So how many of you are like adamant note takers? You love notes. You love visuals. Okay, like three of you. I thought there'd be more. Uh, I've got visuals today uh, to help you take notes. And so I'm going to show you six things that we see in this text from King Jesus. And here is your first one, okay? The first thing that we see in this text is we see the king's glory. That in this moment, Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God like Moses did. He is the glory of God. He was revealing the glory of God. He is the glory of God in the flesh. Look at verse 3. It says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I mean, this is Hebrews 1.3, where it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I mean, think about this. Last week, we talked about um, how Jesus told the disciples that he was the Son of Man, going back to Daniel 7. That Jesus told them, I am the one who has dominion and power and authority. All nations bow to me. And he said, the Son of Man, the King of all things, that King must die. And the disciples, they can't wrap their minds around that. It's, that's confusing to them. How does the king die? He's got power and authority. How would he die? To die is to be weak. To suffer means that you're not in control. And so Peter rejects that idea. And Jesus reminds them, no, my suffering has always been the plan of God. Always been. The, this must happen. And in this moment, right after that, Jesus is going to remind them, don't forget how glorious I am. Don't forget how majestic I am. I mean, think of 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where it says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And where do we see the glory of God? In the face of Jesus. That in this moment, Jesus is reminding them, don't forget, I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a rabbi like the crowds think I am. I am the definition of majesty. You want to see glory? Look at my face, that he is the glory of God in the flesh, and he is worthy of every ounce of our worship. I want to stop and ask a question, because I have a suspicion that I might lose some of us here. Uh, I want to stop and ask a question, because when you think of the glory of God, when you hear me or anybody else talk about the glory of God, what do you think of? Like, really, like, what comes to mind? What images come to your mind? Let me ask it this way. 
does the idea of the glory of God or the glory of Jesus seem like a far-off, distant thing to you? You may be apathetic about it. You don't really care about it. You don't really know how to categorize it. I wonder if any of us in here resonate with that. I want you to indulge me for a second. I want to, us to do an activity, okay? And I don't usually do this. Um, and it might seem like a strange thing to some of you, okay? But I want you to close your eyes, if you would. And I want you to look down, bow your head, do the best to minimize the distractions around you. <clears throat> and so children and teenagers that are in here with us, I want you to do this as well. So if you're a ch child, um, I, I want you to participate with us in this. I want you to bow your head, close your eyes, and I want you to just let your mind go there. What does the glory of God look like? What does it look like? What does he look like? What does it feel like to be in the presence of God, to see and experience the glory of God? And while you are letting your mind go there, I want to read a couple verses. And so focus on who he is, what he looks like, what it's like to be in his presence. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them saying to him, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. As you meditate on God's glory, what does he look like? Where are you in this picture? Are you kneeling? Are you standing with hands raised? Do you stand before him in humility? Are you in awe? Are you a little bit scared, fearful? Do you have peace, comfort? Let me read one last text. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now look back up at me. As we behold the glory of God, he transforms us. He transforms us. And that's the second thing we see, that the king transforms us by beholding his glory. You have to think about this. You have these three guys going up with Jesus on the mountain. You've got Peter and James and John. Remember what Jesus had just told them. He told them, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. 
That there's a piece of you that wants this world that must be crucified. It must be put to death. And Peter, years later, would be imprisoned multiple times. And he's going to end up being crucified upside down on a cross. James is going to be put in prison and beheaded. John is going to be exiled on an island. And so the question is that I would like to ask is, how in the world were they faithful through all of that? How are they faithful even to the point of death? The question is the same for us. How are we going to be faithful in this life, in this world? How will we be sustained in this life? How will we survive the road of suffering? So that word transfigured, metamorpho, it only appears two other times in Scripture. One is in Romans 12, 2, and the other one is in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. So think about this. He was transfigured. He was transformed. He took on a new, complete change. And it's the same word that's in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. And to the same image, from one degree of glory to another, that like Jesus, we are being transformed. And how does that happen? How does God transform our lives? By beholding the glory of God. That we look to the glory of God. Of God, And so how did the disciples, how were they able to embrace the road of suffering that led to glory? Because they saw the glory of God in Jesus. They saw him. That the more you behold the glory of God, the more you are being transformed into his image. And so look, I don't know what's going on in everyone's lives in here. I have no idea. And I will not be able to fully explain, and no one will be able to fully explain, why you have suffered and gone through the things that you have gone through. But here's what we know as the church. When we behold the glory of God, he changes us. He transforms us. Like the classic hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of what? His glory and his grace. We behold the glory of God, and he transforms us, he changes us. And in verse 4, we learn that Jesus isn't alone on this mountain. It says there appeared to him, uh, to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So here's a question. What do you think Jesus, Elijah, and Moses are talking about? The weather? Well, what's cool is that Luke 9 actually tells us what they were talking about. We don't have to guess. So this is in Luke's account in Luke 9.30. It says, Behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of what? His departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what did they talk about? They talked about his departure. So Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about the departure of Jesus. And get this, okay? If this isn't cool to you, I don't know what will be cool to you in the world, okay? That word in the Greek, departure, is the word exodus. It's the word Exodus. I mean, come on. That's so cool, right? We have Moses, the man that God used to lead the people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and into freedom. And he is talking with Jesus about how Jesus is going to lead the people of God out of slavery to sin into freedom in his name. And so here's the next thing we see. The king is the savior of our souls. That in this moment, On this mountain, in this conversation, the representative of the law, 
Moses and the representative of the prophets, Elijah, they are testifying. They are talking with Jesus about his departure, about his exodus. They're talking about the gospel, that he is about to suffer and die for the sins of his people so that they can be moved from slavery to freedom. What's waiting for him in Jerusalem? This next section we're about to enter into in Mark, it's called uh, On the Road to Jerusalem. That's the, the name of Mark 9 through 11 and 12 that you'll see time and time again and say, as he was on his way, as he was on his way, as he was on his way. He's going to Jerusalem and what's waiting for him there? He told them last week in Mark 8.31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And the disciples, they're watching this moment and it's obvious that this is a significant moment, right? Like there are moments in life where you stop and go, okay, this moment's important, right? There's something different about this moment where you, like maybe you're talking to your spouse or your family or a roommate or a really good friend and, and you think, okay, I have to choose my words carefully here. You ever been in a moment like that? Like this is a shaping moment for the future in our relationship. I have to choose what I say very carefully. I remember um, I was in, uh, when I was in college, I went to a friend's wedding and the ceremony was beautiful. It was a display of worship all throughout the wedding. And we got to the moment where the officiant was going to say, okay, do you take so-and-so to be your bride to have and to hold and on and on. And you hear in the back of the crowd, mom, I have to go pee-pee. And you're like, kid, you could have chosen any other time to yell that, right? Well, here in this moment, you have the glory of God. Jesus is radiant. He's standing with Moses and Elijah, the representative of the law, the representative of the prophets, both of whom the Old Testify, testify about, uh, the Old Testament testifies about Jesus. And Jesus is speaking with them. And then in verse 5, Peter comes up and says, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. And you're like, bro, read the room, okay? Just read the room, all right? Just hold on. Just let the moment happen. And he goes on and he says, let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So what's the deal with the tents? Well, if you think back, um, if you know the Old Testament, if you think back to like Mount Sinai with Moses and the Hebrew people, they built a tabernacle. Well, why? Why did they build a tabernacle? Well, Peter knows, um, and all the Jewish people would have known, that there is a gap between human beings and the divine. Okay, That in order for man to commune with God, there needs to be something in the middle to mediate that gap, to protect human beings from the divine. And what Peter is actually saying here is, hey, we need a tabernacle. We need to set up rituals. We need to set up traditions to protect us from the presence of God. Because if humanity with sin is in the divine presence, then they could die. And immediately after Peter says this, a cloud appears and it envelops them. It envelops Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and you hear God speak. He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. In Matthew's account, he tells us that the disciples fell on their face. They were terrified. Why? Because it was known that if you were in the presence of God as a sinful human being, you would die because God's justice demands that sin be punished. But consider this. They are in the very presence of God, yet Peter, James, and John do not die. How could that be possible? 
Look at verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. That's Mark's way of saying Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, and Jesus is the bridge over the gap between God and humanity. That Jesus is able to give what Elijah couldn't give, what Moses couldn't give, what no one has been, ever been able to give. That through Jesus, we can be in the presence of God and live. That Jesus himself is the temple. Jesus himself is the tabernacle. And he's the temple that ends all temples. The tabernacle that ends all tabernacles because he is the sufficient sacrifice to end all sacrifices. That it is possible to experience the full presence of God through the Son of God. And that leads to the third thing that we see from Jesus, that the king is the beloved son of God and our sacrifice. That God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That language is meant to remind us of another mountain with another son. That centuries earlier on a mount, mountain called Mount Moriah, God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son. So Genesis 22, 1. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham goes in faith to a mountain. He's going to sacrifice his only son whom he loves. And so Abraham goes to that mountain, he lays his son in an altar, and he's about to sacrifice his son when God tells him to stop. And God provides a ransom. So in Genesis twenty-two fourteen, 14, it says, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So centuries before Mark chapter 9, God provided a sacrifice for Abraham's only son. And centuries later, on another mountain, God declares, this is my beloved son. This is the son that God would give as a sacrifice for sins. Only this time, the father would not stop the sacrifice. Jesus, the son of God, would die as an offering for sin. And the voice of God here in this moment, he gives specific instructions for the disciples. What does he tell them? He says, listen to him. Listen to him. And that's the fifth thing that we see in our king, that the king is the word of God, that life is found in listening to the son of God. So let me ask a question. Do you ever just stop and listen? When you're studying the Bible, when you're actually listening right now, I mean, do you ever really stop and intentionally listen to what God may be telling you, right? Because life is found in listening to the Son of God, that when you come to God's Word, His revealed Word, we have to come with humility and with an understanding that the Bible reads you. It tells you about you. You don't read your Bible. So many of us, we approach the word of God as if it's something that's to be read and something that's to be conquered, that reading the Bible is something that is achieved, that we can walk away feeling good because of our works, but that kind of approach to the Bible isn't lasting, that we are to approach God's word with the understanding that I don't read it. It reads me. 
It tells me about who I am created to be. It tells me about the God who created me. It tells me where I'm prideful. It tells me where my flesh, flesh and sin have a hold of me, and it points me, it reveals to me the Son of God, and so I listen to the Word. I stop and listen to His words. And so Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they begin to make their way down this mountain, and they have a conversation, and it's a fascinating conversation. They say, it says in verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they please as it is written. Here's the last thing. The king will restore all things. If you look at Malachi 4.5, so let me put, put all the pieces here together. Malachi 4.5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so the belief in Jewish life was that before Jesus come, God told the people of God, before the Messiah comes, I will send you Elijah whom we know on this side of the death and resurrection of Christ, according to God's word, was John the Baptist. Matthew's account actually makes this crystal clear. So let me read to you from Matthew 17, 10. It says the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? That first Elijah must come. And he answered, this is Jesus, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Okay, so John the Baptist, who is not a reincarnation of Elijah, but rather he came in the spirit of Elijah. About John the Baptist, the Gospels say that he prepared the way for Jesus, that he went into the wilderness and preached that one was coming, the Messiah was coming. And Jesus says of John the Baptist that Elijah has already come and he will restore all things. Well, how will he restore all things if he has already died? Because John the Baptist has paved the way for the restorer, for the one who would restore all things. And here's the deal. The disciples know at this point what has happened with John the Baptist. They know that Herod put him in prison and beheaded him. And so follow this. Jesus wants them to connect the reality that God is faithful to what he has said that he will do, that all that he has said will happen will in fact happen. And God told them that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And so in their confusion, they essentially say, I thought that we were taught that Elijah must come before the Messiah. And so Jesus says, he has come. He has suffered. He says, they did to him whatever they please." And then he says, just like it was written that Elijah would come, it has also been written that the Son of Man would suffer. That the Son of Man would suffer. He says, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with content? And many people believe that when it says, how is it written, that that's a direct reference to Isaiah 53, where God's word says, he was despised 
and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That We are to remember that there will be a day when a new heaven and new earth will come down. We will live in peace with God once again. No more sin, no more shame, no more tears, and no more grief. No more sorrows. Why? Because he put our sorrows and our grief on his shoulders. He bore them. He carried them. And he restored. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That restoration comes through his wounds. So Jesus is reminding them in this moment, God is faithful. To his word. Elijah has come before me. He has paved the way. It was written that he would come, and he came. And so he tells them, it is also written that I would suffer. And God will be faithful to that word as well. One last thing that I want us to consider as we close. Jesus, while he was on that mountain, he displayed his full glory. I mean, no one can deny that. I mean, full glory. But you know what's a simple truth that's really fascinating? He did not stay on that mountain, but he walked down that mountain with his disciples, knowing what was coming, knowing that he was going to lead an exodus, that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So consider Philippians 2, 5 through 9. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not stay on that mountain. He came down, and what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in the next few moments, my my prayer for us is that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, that as we worship here, that we would be transformed as we behold his glory and he transforms us into the same image, that we would find our joy, satisfaction, rest, and salvation in him and nothing else. Because look, you can behold something else and it will change you as well. You can behold entertainment, you can behold, prom- uh, you can behold the things of this world and it will change you. But when you behold Christ, he transforms you into his image. And you can find joy in that place.